Welcome everyone to day two of this intensive journey through folk cultures of diasporic Asian communities. So hopefully you've been getting a nice intuitive sense of what folklore is. And now even if you feel kind of lost, it's okay. Uh, the more practice you get with these things, the easier they're going to become. Today, what we'll do is basically two things. In this first segment, we're going to talk about the basic goals of studying folklore. And then we're going to turn to some ways in which you can analyze folklore in segment two, uh, meaning how do we figure out what folklore means to the people who use it? So let's start by asking this question, why on earth should you do a thing like study folklore? Here's four basic answers for you. First and foremost, folklore is fun. And it's really important to remember this because sometimes it's easy to forget that it's fun when you're so busy studying. Um, second, folklore is worth studying because it's a topic that often gets overlooked by those other bigger fields that you might be more familiar with. Literature, anthropology, sociology, psychology, religious studies. These fields, they all have a lot to learn from folklorists because sometimes they get kind of tone deaf, I have to say, to the person-to-person, -person, uh, informal processes of cultural transmission that we've been talking about. The third thing is that folklore is meaningful to the people who use it and share it. Otherwise, they just stop sharing it. Uh, so, which kind of goes along with the first reason, it's fun. It's fun and meaningful. Finally, if you stick with it, there is a chance that you can get a job as a folklorist. Okay, maybe it's a slim chance, I'm not sure, but you never know, right? Uh, anyway, these are the motivations that you could have for studying folklore in depth. Uh, once you make this fateful decision to continue on, you stay in this course, become a budding young folklorist, um, then you start to say that you have kind of four tasks or jobs to do. First and foremost, foremost, as a folklorist, you have to find and collect items of folklore by going out in the field, interviewing living consultants. They're not like experts or pundits. They're actually ordinary people, whether they're your friends, your family, your neighbors, random strangers, right? Um, once you collect your awesome folklore items, then you bring them back into the folklore archives and you catalog them. You, you put them in place, you classify them so that other scholars, students, even the general public can easily find the data that you've gathered. This is something that folklore departments do all over the world. Uh, and for years, these items would have been recorded with ink and paper, uh, printed out and put in big metal filing cabinets, right? At UBC, uh, we've developed these online archives uh, where you can upload not just text, but also images, audio, video clips, we're going to be kind of uh, browsing through this archives in the, in the weeks to come. After you collect and catalog your folklore, the third task that folklorists do is to analyze this, these items, to explain to others why you think the items are culturally significant or meaningful. And along with your own ideas, you should also be able to, uh, you should be sure to record what your consultant thinks about the items, what, it, what they mean to him or her. This is something that many folklorists actually kind of fail to do sometimes. They get caught up in their own theories. Finally, the fourth task of the folklorist is to disseminate your findings. If you're an academic folklorist, uh, this means you publish, right? You publish books or essays or articles. If you're a public folklorist, then you do it through different kinds of media that are accessible to the general public, like digital archives on the net, 
or museum exhibits or festival performances, parades, installations, magazine articles, that kind of thing. As far as you're concerned, you can think of the items that you'll be uh, collecting in your projects as um, being the way that you disseminate your folklore because they're going to be used by and looked at by all the other students and who knows, maybe the general public uh, after the course is over. Alongside the four tasks of the folklorist, you can also think about uh, the four aims or ambitions that the folklorist has. Uh, four ways, in other words, that folklorists are trying to change the world around them for the better. Um, I, I found that thinking about these is to kind of like, it's a good way to sort of energize what you're going to be doing in your own digital uh, media projects. First, people become folklorists because they want to preserve folklore items that are in danger of dying out. Uh, this is especially important when we're thinking of, let's say, minority or vulnerable communities. Uh, their traditions are usually threatened to be erased by mass media, pop culture, because many times kids get their culture from TV or the internet rather than their parents or their grandparents. Secondly, folklorists try to discover new emergent forms of folklore. Uh, when new subcultures pop up, for example, they tend to come with lots of new forms of folklore around them. Things like um, music subcultures like punk rock scenes or metal scenes or hip-hop, dubstep, uh, trap, whatever you're into. Uh, there are tons of slang terms, costumes, food habits, legends, and all these kinds of things that come with these subcultural scenes in the underground music world. Uh, if, you, if any, any of you happen to be part of subcultures that involve you know, say Asian, Asian Canadian youth, you might be able to stumble onto kind of like a gold mine of different types of folklore that you yourself are an expert on. The third reason why people go into folklore studies is to track histories of well-known or interesting items of folklore. People who like folk tales or legends or myths, for example, do this a lot. Uh, let's say you wanted to know where Snow White came from, the story of Snow White, uh, and what that original Snow White uh, might have looked like. Or maybe you want to first know, know where the game Rock, Paper, Scissors came from. Or maybe you want to know where breakdancing started or, and what it looked like. Think about the Snopes.com uh, website, for example. They track down the sources of urban legends and other types of internet lore. That's basically folklore studies. The fourth aim of folklore studies is something that um, we're going to learn from Alan Dundee's uh, is that not a lot of people do this fourth thing, which is analysis. We want to figure out how and why folklore is important to the people who share it. This is maybe the hardest challenge of folklore studies, and this is what we're going to kind of dig into for most of this um, fast semester. Now, with these tasks, aims, and motivations in, in mind, uh, I want to kind of finish this very short segment by just by mentioning the famous folklorist Jan Brunvand, who kind of gave you 11 distinct questions that folklorists ask. Uh, McNeil has this in her, in her folklore rules. This is maybe another way to give a few kind of initial motivations or reflective questions as you're hunting around in your house and among your friends for folklore. Now, let's say you're a folklorist and have collected an item. How about a proverb like, the empty vessel makes the most noise? Right, that's your item. The first question you can ask is one of definition. What makes this an item of folklore? Well, we saw this last time, right? That it's got to have multiple existence and variation. Then you can talk about its classification. 
what kind of folklore is it? What genre does it belong to? Let's call it a proverb, right? Then you can identify the source from where it, uh, where you collected it from. Let's say I got it from my uncle. It was in Pune in India. Then it would be a, a, a Marathi-speaking Brahmin who lives in Karvenagar district of the city of Pune, India. That's my origin. And then if you're interested in its history, you can start investigating its original form and from where and when and by whom this proverb might have been first created. This would involve a lot of library work, digging up other references, and also using kind of sophisticated techniques of tracing back the original form. The fifth question you can ask is one of transmission. How did this proverb get carried around the world? How far has it gone? This also involves a lot of kind of research work, hunting down parallels in other archives, uh, other texts in the world. Hand in hand with, with, with this, there's a question of variation. <clears throat> what are the different uh, parts of the proverb that have changed and how come? Uh, then there's more dif uh, difficult questions you can ask about this item, like what about structure and function? What's the kind of underlying architectonics of this proverb? What's the relationship between the form and the content? Uh, how does the item of folklore work for its group? What kind of message does it communicate to its group? Finally, there's three more questions that are maybe the hardest to answer and often require a lot of kind of sophisticated interviewing skills. This concerns purpose, meaning, and use or application of that item of folklore. Uh, so what's the motivation for using this proverb? What effect would it have had on the audience? What does the proverb symbolize? What does it represent for that Brahmin Marathi community in Pune from which I collected it? How might studying this proverb help to solve other larger problems or issues around the world? Maybe interculturally understanding, <clears throat> Canadian foreign policy, who knows, Indian politics, maybe. Uh, like I said, the quest these kind of questions, uh, they, Brunvan arranged them in sort of order of difficulty. Most folklorists won't venture into all of the questions. They kind of tend to stick to the facts, basically, right? Uh, and talk about maybe function and meaning of the things that they're collecting. That's what we're probably going to do. Uh, this is something we'll talk more about uh, throughout the term, uh, the ways in which folklorists use, the methods that they use to analyze function and meaning of folklore. Now, we'll turn to that. Well, I'll, I'll have a kind of quick little method that I've developed for you to, to really easily get at meaning. Um, but maybe let's take a quick break here, uh, and then we'll come back and talk about analyzing folklore. Uh -huh.